Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. I am Anna Fishson, your host, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with a fellow Russianist and a devoted student of psychoanalysis, Alexander Etkind, or, or Sasha, more affectionately, as I'll call him, uh, about his recent book, Warped Morning, Stories of the Undead in the Land of the Unburied, published in 2013 by Stanford University Press. Sasha, welcome. It, it's a pleasure to have you on. Well, yes, it's a pleasure to be with you, and yes, please call me Sasha. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Okay, so I'm just going to introduce you a little bit more formally. Um, Alexander Edkind is Professor of History and Mikhail Bakhtin Chair at European University Institute in Florence. For eight years, he was Professor of Russian Literature and Cultural History in the Department of Slavonic Studies and Faculty of Modern and Medieval Languages at King's College, University of Cambridge in the U.K., he holds two PhDs. Uh, he received the first in psychology from the Berkhtarev Research Institute in Leningrad in 1985, and his second PhD in Slavic languages and literatures from the University of Helsinki in 1998. Sasha's publications include, uh, and, and this is a very, this is very much a partial list: uh, "Eros of the Impossible: The History of Psychoanalysis in Russia," West Du Press, 1996. Internal Colonization, Russia's Imperial Experience, Polity Press, uh, 2011. And two co-authored volumes, Remembering Cotton, Polity Press, 2012. And Memory and Theory in Eastern Europe by Paul Grave Macmillan, 2013. So the book we'll we'll be discussing today uh, looks at how three generations uh, spanning the Soviet and post-Soviet eras up to the present day, actually, um, mourn the millions who perished in the gulag or the terror, the Stalinist political repressions of the 1930s. And it offers interpretations often inflected by, by psychoanalysis or, or psychoanalytic insights of various cultural production, which include you know, autobiographical literature, film, visual art, academic writings, and sites of memory, such as monuments and memorials. So Sasha shows how the work of mourning evolved across time uh, first in written and visual culture produced in the 1950s and 60s by those who had direct experience of incarceration and were quite traumatized, and then by those whose parents were either killed or spent time in the gulag and who themselves were jailed in the 1960s, and finally the generation writing now, uh, the, the granddaughters and grandsons, so to speak. So, th- so the book traces the evolution of this uh, sort of incomplete mourning uh, or vexed mourning and the cultural hauntings it produced. And it argues that the deaths and horrific incarcerations of the 1930s were not worked through fully, in part because, I guess, the division between victims and perpetrators, uh, and you can correct me here, were not very clear, and also because mourning the uh, persecuted was entwined with mourning communism. I think that was another factor here. So he argues that this unfinished mourning causes the Russian present to be flooded with the past, at least until recently, arguably. But 
you know, basically that history still lives in Russia and has an immediacy in a way that it, it just doesn't in the U.S., for example. Okay, so Sasha, can you begin the interview proper uh, by telling us a bit about your background? I'm very curious, and maybe the listeners are too, about that first PhD in psychology, uh, how you developed your interest, and um, what it was like basically studying psychology in the Soviet Union or practicing as a clinician there. Well, it was uh, peculiar, as you, uh, as you imagine. Uh, uh, you, you know, that was the uh, time of the so-called perestroika, very rapid uh, social and cultural change mm. uh, launched by, you know, political transformation and the psychological impact of all of this, you know, together in the mid-1980s was huge. And uh, I got it from the Department of Psychology, uh, which was a kind of proper department of psychology focused most on experimental Psychology also, you know, our professors were trying to do, uh, tech, you know, tech, technical uh, research and development. They called it engineering psychology, this kind of things. And it was also the very start of the development of clinical psychology in the late 30s. So I took part in all this and uh, also developed um, some historical interests in uh, the... Uh, you know, history of clinical psychology and psychoanalysis in Russia. But it, it didn't last long, actually. Um, hmm. I did the final dissertation in 1985, and I was fired from this Bethlehem Institute just one year hmm. later because of some kind of uh, perestroika that, uh, together with some you know, colleagues, I tried to launch within the institution. Huh. Interesting. Um, and so you said it was it was over pretty quickly, but then you you still, despite the fact that you you write as a Slavist and as a historian, it's obvious that uh, at least Freudian insights, Freudian ideas, um, really permeate your your work. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, the genesis of of Warped Morning in particular, because it it feels it feels very per, like a personal book to me. And it does harken back to your earlier work on the reception of the Freudian ideas in Russia. And it also actually even features your uncle, Yefim Etkin. When I first saw that name, I thought, hmm, relation? But then, and then you sort of come out with it. So anyway, it, feel, it feels like a very moving personal statement, but also one that uh, really draws on, on, on psychoanalytic ideas. Well, you know, I'm doing cultural history. I don't really consider myself as uh, psychologically inspired uh, historian. But uh, I am truly interested uh, for uh, for decades in in history of psychology, history of uh, uh, emotions, history of uh, psychoanalysis, of medical practices, of various kinds, history of subjectivity. It's all connected to me. I, I mean, uh, you know, different historians have different approaches. Um, there are economic historians. Uh, uh, I, I sort of, uh, I uh, call myself cultural history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but psychology is right there. Uh, particular individual experience and subjectivity. And, um, uh, uh, you know, having grown up in a deeply traumatized society, I, I, call, I call this condition post-catastrophic. Right. Uh, meaning the catastrophe of uh, of the um, Soviet period of st- most of Stalinism and everything that happened also after that, uh, up to the 
uh, collapse of the state of the Soviet Union, which obviously I uh, uh, witnessed. And I had I have had you know many relatives who you know who either perished there you know starting from the Civil War of the 1920s. You know people told me the stories of um, our you know uh, aunties or whatever you know uncles um, mm-hmm. many times remote, of course. Uh, so it is a personal story. Uh, this kind of story cannot possibly be, be impersonal if it is written not by an outsider, but if it is written within the, the, the culture. Um, but indeed, uh, there is a, it's, I think it's, it is close to psychoanalysis that you know, even if you are working within a particular situation, you need to take yeah. some kind of uh, intermediate role, both within and outside of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So, um, while some of the you mentioned post-catastrophic, uh, that's a concept that that I I forgot, but it it actually is, figures prominently. Some other concepts in the book are uh, mourning, obviously, um, hauntology, and and magical historicism, which I think you coin, or, or I'm I'm going to decide yeah. in this program that you've coined it. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah, magical historicism is a more specific thing, but I want also, because it, it relates to particular literary approach or style, or cultural style that is, I think, is dominating in the contemporary mm. Russian fiction and uh, also some, some particular sort of, particular type of visual art uh, and mm-hmm. film. Uh, and uh, it is, uh, Kind of parallel to magical realism, in uh, which which is you know the, the, this described uh, in uh, 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 Latin American uh, literature of a certain period. Right. But my point is just that look, uh, there is it is full of magic, but uh, there is no realism there. But uh, there is a very particular, very intensive interest in history. So that's. This is the, the origins of this concept of magical historicism. But I think that for your psychological-minded audience, another uh, concept that I coined in that book would be probably more interesting, and this is the concept of mimetic mourning. Mm-hmm, right. And uh, sort of I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what, what, what mourning is about, what is it made of. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like, what, what is the psychological and cultural material? What, 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 what people do really sort of see in their minds or what they're talking to themselves when they mourn. And uh, the, intuition, the intuition, and I sort of demonstrated on many examples that people are reproducing the personality of, of, of the lost, of their one, or, and the situation of the lost. So much of What's going on uh, is mimetic. It's like mourning is mimetic in the sense that it, is reprodu- it reproduces the particular stories and details, circumstances of the past that are connected like an aura of that person who is being mourned. So that's the concept of mimetic mourning. But also it's a, a kind of interesting step that I think it is interesting, an interesting step that I make that in, uh, you know, while... Of course, you, you, you probably remember the distinction between, between mourning and melancholia through that Freud rule. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, Freud, I think, sort of uh, 
do it in, this, in similar terms, though he does, doesn't say that more than just necessarily mimetic. But if it is mimetic, if it is reproductive, then um, there is a risk uh, that the subject in uh, reproducing the death uh, <laughs> is or would be on the edge of the death herself. So this mimetic modeling should, should, uh, needs some kind of uh, limits uh, uh, un, uh, unless it uh, is suicidal. Yes, I, I think there mm-hmm. is also the, the, the intuition that underlies the Freud's concept of melancholia. So I'm, I'm trying to find, uh, to, to describe those uh, self-limiting mechanisms that a mournful person sets by herself. Uh, mechanisms such as, say, irony, like I say, self-irony, that is very prominent in many cultural practices, mourning. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so there's an, a, an attempt maybe to distance oneself from the mourned objects, right, so that you can uh, complete the work of mourning. If there's no distance between you and the object... Yeah, then it's a few sides, isn't it? Yeah. You also, I'm thinking as you're talking about mimetic mourning, I don't know if this is an example of it, but I immediately thought of when the part of the book where you describe the camp survivors returning to the camp for visits uh-huh. and, and, and their children or, or relatives, like famous writers, uh, whether unconsciously or not, doing, saying, writing things that induce the authorities to send them to the gulag, to put them basically in the place of their rel- where their relatives had been. And this, this seems so powerful to me that, I mean, this is a kind of repetition um, that has, you know, of course, huge consequences. And you, you relate it to actually Sinyavsky's, I think, theory of metaphor, uh, the idea that metaphor can become reality, or at least yeah, this is the way. Right. But I actually thought about also um, Tarok and Abraham's demetaphorization, and, um, which is also tied to this, you know, compulsion to repeat, but repeat in this kind of non-playful, literal way without variation, just... Anyway, so it's so it's there's no metaphor. I mean, it's it's just it's purely it's yes, mimesis. It's mimetic. Um, so yeah. I, is this what you're referring to? I guess this is like maybe a concrete example. Yeah, this is a, uh, an example. There are many others, uh, mm. but uh, uh, in the 1960s in, um, in in the Soviet Russia, there was a kind of pilgrimage to the former um, uh, sites of the Gulag, to the former camp. Uh, mm-hmm. And people went there, they collected some artifacts, and they, 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 they so this kind of consistent or, or you know, uh, uh, obsessive um, um, tra- travel in space, you know, to visit those, those places. But of course, some uh, very important people, such as Zosa Brodsky, the Fusion Nobel Prize laureate, or Andrei Sinyavsky, very hugely important um, uh, writer and uh, the future professor of uh, the University of Paris. So they, they um, engineered their, their lives in such a way that they were actually arrested and they did mm-hmm. they go to uh, you know, uh, the site of the former camps or the actual prisons. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there could be many uh, reasons for doing that, for, for doing what they did. But one of, so just looking at that text, I kind of, the, the I, I just interpret their actions 
by reading their texts that were written before or after the incarceration. Mm-hmm. I'd like to actually take a step back because um, talking about mourning, it was interesting to me that you chose to focus on mourning rather than, uh, let's say, trauma or melancholia because for those of you out there who aren't sort of cultural historians, there's a, there's a lot of... There's been in recent years, uh, trauma theory is used a lot. Um, mel- the concept of melancholia is often picked up, let's say, when colonial melancholy, that's like one concept. So, so you make a conscious decision, it seems, not to focus on trauma. Of course, that's unavoidable. We talk about trauma, melancholy, etc. But, but you focused on mourning for a reason. I mean, you had... Maybe, maybe you can talk about why you chose mourning rather than these other... Yeah, there are many pages in my book that, you know, are, are, are about this distinction, but I strongly prefer the concept of mourning. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, for several reasons. First, um, mourning is for the other, while trauma is something that, uh, you know, had happened to the subject mm. and uh, to the survivor. And we're not, I, I'm not talking about the, the, those who survived the gulag. I'm talking about those who mourn for its weakness. Uh, so trauma wouldn't work in this condition just for very formal reasons, but also um, I'm, I'm kind of tired of the of, of trauma uh, theory in general, and I think there is some kind of some, something wrong in the very kind of center, in the very heart of, of it, because, you know, in, in Freud, trauma is about the inability to represent the um, event uh, that um, that caused uh, pain or wound or trauma. So there is a wound, uh, there is pain, there is a disturbance uh, on many levels, physical, psychological, and one of the levels is this inability to represent the cause of the trauma. Well, many stories that uh, I am kind of obsessed with, or just I was when I was writing that, uh, that book, uh, it was a kind of different situation in which a widow, a widow of the great uh, Soviet poet, Oshab Mandelstam, she was a fantastic uh, personality and writer, uh, mm-hmm. in her Mandelstam. So she was, after he perished in the camp, she was really haunted by, she was really upset, she was, you know, she was determined to uh, find, uh, to, 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 to figure out what had happened to him. So she was interviewing the survivors, she was collecting all kinds of, you know, indirect evidence, she was at, at, you know, attacking the authorities with formal or informal um, queries. Uh, so that was, first of all, that was not her, you know, her, uh, she, uh, you know, she, she was uh, traumatized by proxy, you know, that she, it's, it's much easier to say that she mourned the loss than to say that she was traumatized. But also she demonstrated a fantastic ability of, not only of represent, representing that very situation, because finally she, you know, did find out uh, in terrible difficult conditions what, what, what actually happened in the world. Uh, but she demonstrated this, you know, um, one could call it, of course, you know, overcompensation. It was really kind of super uh, 
capability uh, super passion mm-hmm. in uh, which was directed at the um, at, at, at which which was motivated by her need to mourn her loss mimetically, otherwise to know uh, imagine uh, experience the loss in that many details which were yeah, and to know how he died, right? To know how he died. Yeah, how he died, what happened to him. Before, you know, between the moment that he, that he disappeared, when he was arrested, then it was not known. You know, mm-hmm. did he survive? Maybe he, maybe he did survive. You know, without many of these uh, millions of victims of the gulag, as it happens, um, in uh, this kind of uh, political terror, but it doesn't happen say in genocide because you know if it is a mass murder, then more or less people know you know who were there uh, uh, and what happened to them. But if it is a political terror, kind of terror, if there is an institution of prison camp, gulag, etc., then millions just they, they 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 just perished, but it was not known what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Because the information that came to from the authorities, they were that were the same authorities who actually, you know, arrested, tortured, and killed, was uh, uh, purposefully imprecise, and no, no, nobody, nobody trusted that information. So then, the widows or the children and grandchildren or researchers or historians, they have, they they have to do a kind of you know massive detective work just to mm-hmm. to learn the date of. of of the, of the dead or the techniques of torture and so, and so on and so on mm. and uh, they do it and we do it uh, for what and wh- wh- why do we do it I think the, this idea of, of mimetic warning as a kind of massive cultural uh, mechanism uh, in the post-catastrophic condition uh, is the explanation so would you contrast uh, this with uh, someone like Varlam Shalamov's uh, work? You, you, you bring him up, and the, the, the one time you do discuss, you do discuss a few survive, camp survivors who wrote about their experience, particularly Shalamov, who was um, a so-called, uh, maybe you can talk about this a little bit, a goner in the camps. He was reduced to a kind of, if, for those familiar with Agamben, a kind of, something called bare life, which Agamben called bare life in the camp. Anyway, but he survived, and what I found fascinating was um, the acceptance by some writers like him of the senselessness of Stalin's purge. So their insistence, actually, on not seeking meaning in it, not, so as not to attribute uh, a purpose to the, to the terror. And this, to me, you know, in Lacanian terms, is identifying with the centom. But... Um, so, you know, it's, it's the opposite. It's actually not trying to understand, but, but really embracing this, this kind of senselessness and, and uh, tra- traumatic kernel within what happened. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Is his, is his approach, would you agree with this? I mean, or is Shalamov's approach unique, or is this something that you, you saw over and over again as well, in addition to this kind of more mimetic mourning, if you will? Well, uh, he, he's one of my heroes and uh, the heroes of my uh, book, really. Uh, yeah. And I, uh, really, I, I, I fully believe, I fully trust this kind of concept of uh, meaninglessness uh, mm-hmm. of torture in the camp. Because it, it was a torture. It was a purposeful, you know, torture that was caused by, and by the institution that was uh, constructed for this very purpose of torture. 
Yes. Most of these camps were not death camps, they were, but they were not, also they were not built for any kind of um, production, uh, which would be kind of, you know, meaningful. Uh, they, they were meaningless. And this torture was not like torture in, in um, um, not like an investigative torture, where people, where authorities torture the subject, you know, correctly or not, for so that they, the, the subject will produce some kind of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. that, that torture was entirely, I call it transformative torture. There was much rhetoric about that, you know, this, that this particular condition of pain and hard uh, labor and meaninglessness of life transforms the subject in such a way that he would become whatever the proper builder of socialism. Uh, so, so uh, you know, like those who believe in investigative torture, they could, can be, you know, right or wrong if they trust the uh, information that they uh, extract. In the same way, there are those who believed in this transformative torture, they can be right or so they were wrong uh, when they believe that it uh, changes the subject in some kind of um, uh, proper way. And Shalomov, I think, uh, in, you know, using very different words. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he, he meant, he had, a, he had a similar intuition. And that, that is a very important uh, kind of a uh, philosophical, uh, uh, kind of existentialist debate between Shalamov and Solzhenitsyn about the meaning of the camp experience. Because Solzhenitsyn, another great writer who recovered um, the, the so, so, so much about the life in the Gulag and made it uh, public for the you know, global world. Um, which Shalamov failed to do. Shalamov uh, remains a kind of local celebrity in Russia. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so Zenitsyn so, 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 so did believe in some kind of uh, sublime uh, elevating experience, uh, meaning of this experience. That, the, the, that one who survives in the camp um, is a better person than he had been before the camp. And Shalom kind of rebelled precisely against this point, that there is no positive aspect. Everything is just, just meaningless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, see, that seems to me very powerful. And did, what about this? The artist you discuss, uh, Boris Shvershnikov. Did you uh-huh. feel like he's also in that vein? I mean, do you think, even though his medium is visual art, it's, it's very different, obviously, but it seems to communicate some of the same, maybe feelings. I don't know. Yeah, he's a really great artist, and uh, your audience is, is, I think, is very welcome to enjoy his art because. For, for some, some reason, which I describe in details in my book, much of his art was uh, uh, bought and then smuggled uh, out of the Soviet Union. So it's, it's uh, in America, in uh, the Cinerly Museum, which is a part of Rutgers University. So uh, everyone who is listening to uh, us in, in America, so he can go, uh, travel there and uh, see this art, because it's... He's, he's a Boris Svishnikov. He was a, a survivor of one of the camps of the Gulag. And uh, he started, he was a professional artist. Uh, he, when he was arrested, he had been already trained. But then he used some kind of support from the 
Yes, I'm not, I'm not, I confess, not so familiar with his, I've never seen the paintings, but they're reproduced in the book, and I, they were even moving in this black and white, you know, versions. They were quite, quite um, impressive, so. They are very moving, of course, this, uh, you know. They're also scary. <laughs> they're they're very scary, they're kind of gothic to some extent. He right. borrowed uh, literally from, um, you know, from kind of old art, from Bosch, for instance, and, um, uh, other kinds of uh, uh, artists who focused on this sort of imagined terror, but it's also it's uh, this combination of uh, uh, horror, uh, elegance, and irony. It is really moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, maybe since we're moving toward the middle, actually, we're we're sort of going through the book. Uh, chapter by chapter without even uh, systematically intending to do this. But uh, in the later part of the book, you you talk about monuments. And um, mm-hmm. you make this point that, um, which is, uh, yeah, that, that, that the Russian state hasn't directed many monuments to its victims. I mean, it has uh, to its own victims. So it has, to some degree, I don't want to overstate it, but, but much less like than Germany, unlike Germany where it's, Sort of everywhere, and you you make this contrast. So I, I guess I guess I'm going to ask a kind of intentionally uh, na- naive question, um, which is, <laughs> why are monuments crucial uh, to collective mourning, say, or and memory, and why do they function differently? Because I feel like you do make this point that they function differently. They're actually more important uh, than poetry or memoirs, say, because they're they're sort of more permanent. But I mean, am I am I misrepresenting what you were saying? Um, you know, I, I'm, I, I was trying to be balanced in this particular uh, respect, and I think it is, uh, you know, it is a virtue to, to give a kind of balanced uh, account, of, uh, especially when, 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 when it comes to this sort of, you know, what, what is, what is important, to, you know, what is important, what is normative. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, uh, and my, my metaphor that I use for this. Um, particular uh, different cultural genres, as I call them, is a metaphor from uh, our computer practice, because we all know what is software and hardware in, uh, in um, you know, computers. Uh, so, right. And uh, what we know for sure is that uh, they both are truly important like this. A box cannot work if there is no software, and software is just kind of symbols if there is no um, material uh, realization of it in the you know, computer. So this, this is my logic in which, uh, so which, which I use to just illustrate the point that uh, cultural texts and also mon- and monuments are equally important. And moreover, uh, m- monuments are like hardware of cultural memory uh, and uh, uh, you know, poetry or films, etc. Uh, they are or philosophical speculations, and they are like software, and they are kind of mutual. Mu- mu- you know, they're, they're they're necessary to one another uh, because uh, 
uh, symbols kind of, uh, you know, hung in the air if a shell doesn't see, uh, you know, that doesn't see monuments, like doesn't, doesn't go to museums, doesn't see the, uh, uh, how it actually, you know, worked and what, what was going on there. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, I think this is the intuition which, uh, which uh, dictates this massive con- construction or reconstruction efforts on the sides of mass murder or horror. As, uh, you know, like the concentration camps, uh, camp museums in Germany. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in, in Russia, there, there, there uh, is, still is, uh, still, it is still not officially closed, uh, an important um, uh, cultural and historical movement, it's called the Memorial Society, which aimed at building monuments or organizing museums on the sites of, uh, of the Soviet terror. And they actually, through decades, they were pretty successful. Of course, they didn't have the scale of German monuments, but there were several thousands of uh, memorialized sites. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because the, the Gulag is a, you know, is a huge institution. Uh, right now, they experience you know, much difficulties because part of their efforts were financed by the foreign money, which is now uh, criminalized by the newest uh, laws and regulations in, in Russia. But I, you know, we'll see what will happen next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I almost feel like uh, I understand exactly what you mean, but I, I also feel like in the United States there are so many monuments to so many things that we almost, well, perhaps we view them cynically that, that you know, people don't really, it's, they're not ultimately that important, or, or maybe some of them are, but, but I see what you mean, to, to have a place to go somewhere and to really, to have the symbol that later generations can, can go to, a site, is, is, is important. Yeah, exactly. So these monuments organize, you know, the community of uh, mourners, uh, you know, from from individual mourning from a cemetery to a massive collective uh, Mm. memory. Yeah, and and after after you discuss, well, I'll I'll skip the. There, there's a lot, there's some interesting, you have some interesting insights about some of, you also discussed Soviet era or 70s, 1970s, 80s uh, films, and um, but it's too much to explain. I don't know if people are familiar with it, but you have this one discussion of Moscow Doesn't Believe in Tears, which is like a, you know, an iconic film from 19, I think it was released in 1980, but... Uh, Okay, anyway, you, you have a very interesting take on Goga, one of the characters in the film, which I'm not sure, I, I, I don't know if this is, uh, is this your, are you the only person who argues that he's a re- returnee, or? Yeah, the, I, I am the only person, yeah. <laughs> I like this very much. Anyway, that's a side note. Uh, for those who got that, great, um, but I'm just going to move on. So, uh, you then discuss uh, post-Soviet uh, hauntology, which you call hauntology, and, and, okay. what, you, and what you called a, Double mourning. I'd like I'd like you to explain that because I think I think it's really interesting this this concept. And I mean, maybe we don't have to get into too much detail about Derrida here, but but maybe we could. I don't know, depending on what you're in the mood for. So tell us what you what you mean by double mourning and hauntology. Um, 
Well, that, you know, double morning uh, is uh, kind of ch another challenging concept because it's like a, a kind of bush, I think, uh, sort of branches that of <laughs> different concepts that uh, grow out of this, uh, you know, uh, post-catastrophic uh, uh, intuition. Uh, and one of the peculiarities of the Soviet, uh, post-Soviet morning, I think, uh, I, this idea should be actually clearer now uh, with, you know, this phenomenon, uh, phenomenon of Putin's uh, late, late of phenomenon of late Putin, Russia, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, that, um, that indeed uh, the, uh, the, the dream of uh, socialism, communism, of uh, equality, justice uh, for everyone, uh, 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 caused the murders of millions of entirely innocent uh, people. And uh, historians mm, like myself, we can, we can reconstruct this uh, chain of events. Some of them were entirely contingent. Some of them could, could be kind of theoretically explicable. Like, you know, I don't believe that we can explain everything. We can explain very little, but uh, we, can, we can, of course, Um, so this dream caused the death of the millions, and then the, and the, 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 then uh, we mourn these victims. Mm -hmm. But we also mourn the uh, murder of the idea that was caused by those uh, the, those. Um, Right. So the, the, those sides of mass, mass murders, such as the Gulag and similar, you know, exile, those places of exile, etc. So they kill the people, and we, it's kind of uh, crystal clear what happened to them, crystal clear now. But it also killed the idea, and uh, that, you know, that, that contributed or dictated uh, those very killings. So, so we, I think, are now in uh, a position to mourn that idea that was killed by the same institutions. Mm -hmm. So this, this is what I call, uh, you know, uh, speculatively, I call it uh, double mourning. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like this, this mourning has been completed in Putin's time. What's, what's going on in Putin's Russia? I mean, is this, is this now a uh, forgetting, you know? Because, um, you know, you, you finished the book, or the book came out in 2013, and, and things have happened since 2013. I wonder, you seem to suggest, uh, you, you, you ended the book on a, on a pretty hopeful note, in some ways at least. Um, but I, I wonder if you're still hopeful, or if you think that, that this uh, mourning the the dead uh, and 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 communism as well. If that's, if, is this still is this still a relevant issue in in this in this Putin's well, it's, Russia? It's, it's, of course, it is relevant. On the other hand, I, I believe that the crimes of the contemporary regime have, have nothing to do with the crimes mm. of the Soviet regime, or you know, the, or to put it in different words, more personal words, Putinism has nothing to do with Stalinism. They are two different, entirely different beasts. And they should be dealt with separately. Uh, while there is a, 
strong school of thought, uh, both in Russia and uh, I think among the uh, uh, Russian scholars in the West, which which claim that precisely because there was all this, you know, because of the Soviet rule, and uh, uh, they have not been fully um, taught right. through, they have not been um, uh, mourned fully, etc. So that, 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 that incomplete looking to the past explains Putinism. I don't believe so. I, I, I don't believe it does. I believe that Putin, just Putin, Putinism is a, is a separate, particular, uh, huge crime. And it will be dealt with in an entirely different way than Stalinism. Uh, so, um, my book uh, ended actually with a, a citation from one of the leaders of the protest movement in Moscow in 2011, and 2012, Alexei Navalny, who uh, yield on the kind of mass, uh, uh, you know, meeting or demonstration. He, he said many times that we will never uh, forget, we will never forgive. And the crowd kind of repeated his words, you know, you know ecstatically. And that what, what, and, and he, what he meant, uh, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, didn't mean the, you know, Soviet times. He, he meant the post-Soviet times. He meant a very particular. Uh, corruption and uh, other kind and murders and other kind of crimes that uh, um, that had happened before the eyes of those people who were there. And uh, this is kind of the, the the things that are going on in the present. They mm-hmm. are important for the politics of the present. Mm-hmm. So while Western scholars might link those things, the Soviet period and Putin's crimes. People in Russia, you're saying, aren't aren't really doing that, or this is not. On the, this is not. Well, people in Russia are also doing that, but also some Western scholars don't do that. I'm, I'm just mm. I'm, I'm just saying <laughs> okay. that I, I don't believe in this transhistorical connection. Right. I do not. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were uh, in relation to that, I wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on culturally in you know contemporary Russia or or in the post-Soviet uh, context. One of the things that you talk about in the book is this kind of. Um, prevalence of monsters and, and zombies in, in the literature. I thought maybe you could comment, because it, you cite Zizek, who calls, uh, I think, he, like, the undead, the fundamental fantasy of today's culture, but, but clearly in, in the late and post-Soviet context, in the contemporary context, uh, it, I mean, is this, is, this, uh, is this something you're saying, too, or what does the production of monsters uh, actually signal for you? Well, it, it, it does. It does signal this uh, in, incomplete and obsessive, uh, you know, work of mourning uh, for the. I mean, uh, this is how contemporary culture responds to all those problems that we have briefly mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. you know, during this half, 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 half uh, hour. And um, you know, we can uh, spend many. Spend much more time and you know uh, drop many more co- scholarly concepts, but um, people with uh, fantasy and uh, mm-hmm. uh, touch with uh, kind of imagination, they um, they produce their own uh, images. Uh, say it could be zombies, say it could be monsters, say it could be vampires. 
And uh, the, the current literature written in Russian and read by Russians, uh, very popular, it's not like highbrow thing, it's a very popular literature nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's full of all this, you know, strange uh, beasts. Uh, as if they hover, you know, you know above the ground, coming from those uh, uh, unburied, uh, uh, forgotten graves. So and, this, this, uh, yeah. you know, looking, looking at the actual text, and, uh, you know, I, this is what I, uh, I do, you know, I'm kind of looking at the details. Uh, this connection between the, the, the bizarre images of these beasts and the uh, uh, political and cultural past of the country, I think it is, actually, it is provable, the connection is provable, and this is what I, I'm trying to do. And uh, in general, you know, coming back to our concepts, this is what I call magical historicism. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you, do, are these monsters, just to be sort of psychoanalytic about it for one second, is this the return of the repressed, or would you call this a kind of efforts, an efforts at estrangement or distanciation between the author and the dead so it's easier to, like a sort of metaphorization, if you will, to, to enable mourning? Or, or how do you, do you conceptualize it in any of these ways, these, the appearance of the monsters? Well, I, I do conceptualize it, uh, you know, trying to uh, hold on to this idea of uh, cultural mimesis. Because, mm. you know, we're, we're talking about uh, uh, this concept of mimetic warning in, that in terms of individual psychology, but on, on the cultural level, which is... Uh, uh, kind of re- relevant when we're talking about literature, film, or monument. Um, so, so this um, uh, concepts, uh, um, I, I, think, I think they work in, um, in a way that, um, you know, it's close to phantasm, it's close to... Mm. Uh, some, to who is the haunting, sometimes it is close to hallucination, but... Uh, mm. It's crucial to me the presence of irony and uh, the mechanisms of self self control and self estrangement, which are all crucial for uh, for literary fiction. And they work in this particular uh-huh. text that I'm uh, dealing with. They 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 work beautifully. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, I we're we're almost out of time, but. Um, as is customary in the new books at the New Books Network, we uh, we often ask, you know, we end the interview by asking what you're what you're working on now. So maybe can you tell us what your current project is, briefly? Well, I, I, I'm uh, uh, about to complete uh, uh, an intellectual biography of uh, William Bullitt, who oh. was the uh, first American ambassador to the Soviet Union and also uh, a co-author of Sigmund Freud. Uh, hmm. absolute, an absolutely fantastic personality who was connected both to, you know, to, to, to everything that I'm interested in, to politics, to uh, uh, literature, because he wrote a couple of novels himself, to psychoanalysis, because he was in analysis with Freud, he also befriended Freud, and they worked together. Hmm. Uh, he was close to Russia, because he was he kind of specialized in Russian politics through decades and also uh, this is my speculation he was pretty close to Russian or Soviet literature because he was the real life model for 
the fascinating character of the master and Margarita, Mikhail Bulgakov's novel. There is a, oh. you know, devil uh, figure there, uh, his name is Volant. So he is the Satan who comes from abroad and plays tricks uh, with the Moscovites, trying to find the truth about their life and the end feelings. And uh, so my, my, my argument is that Bully, because he befriended Bulgakov and hoped but failed to help Bulgakov to emigrate <laughs> from the Soviet Union, that then Bulgakov, you know, already after Bully's departure, depicted Bullet as Voland in the Master Margarita. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you, uh, just, just curious, um, how did you... First, did you come across a lot of material somehow in your other researches? Is that how you decided to focus on him? Or is he someone who's always fascinated you? Well, he was, did fascinate me for a very long time. Uh, I, in my Eras of the Impossible, uh, certain mm-hmm. old book now, uh, 20 years old, but there is a chapter about Bulgakov, Freud, Bulgakov, and Bullet. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I'm kind of developing, you know, the uh, stories that I have been fascinated over the long. Mhm. Mhm. Okay. Well, I look forward to look to seeing that book. Um, I look forward to our future <laughs> dialogues about it. That's right. Thank you. Um, anyway, so I, I guess we should wrap up. Uh, you've written a beautiful and fascinating book. Again, we've been speaking with Alexander Etkind about Warped Morning Stories of the Undead in the Land of the Unburied. Uh, Sasha, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. That was a pleasure. <laughs> and thanks to our audience for listening. Till next time. Bye-bye.